Have you ever used the phrase, he just doesn't get it? Probably used that one more than you've used the phrase, she doesn't get it. But have you ever used that phrase before? He just doesn't get it. Or maybe it's been said about you, uh, they just don't get it. Well, I thought about that phrase this week as I came across an article. It's actually in a book, but I came across this article that was in, of all things, the Arkansas Democrat, Democrat Gazette. Many of you know that I'm from Arkansas. Uh, and here's what the, the guy writes, speaking of this idea. He said, women are very touchy about certain gifts, as I discovered years ago after buying my girlfriend a catcher's mitt for her birthday. It seemed to me to be a particularly thoughtful gift, especially since she claimed not to be getting enough physical exercise, but apparently she didn't see it that way. The minute she unwrapped it, she, she ran sobbing from the room. At first, I thought those were tears of joy streaming down her face. I figured she was overwhelmed at being the first in her crowd to have a catcher's mitt, that sort of thing. Or I figured she was so excited she couldn't wait to get outside and work on her throws to second base. But when she didn't return after a couple of hours, I got the hint. Here I'd spent all that time running around from one sporting goods store to the next, trying to find that perfect gift. I mean, we're talking the Johnny Bench model here, top of the line, and she calls me insensitive. I mean, you'd think I'd given her a year's subscription to Field and Stream, or a box of shotgun shells, which everyone knows should be saved for Christmas stocking stuffers. Personally, I just think she had a lot of anger in her and took it out on me. Not that I'm trying to play amateur psychologist or anything. Now, certainly that piece was written tongue-in-cheek, but I can't help but think that there's at least a little bit of, of a seed of truth in it. I don't know if you ladies realize that this or not, but um, men tend to be slow sometimes when it comes to understanding what you guys want, and particularly the art of gift-giving. Uh, you may not be too surprised by that statement. But speaking of that idea, there are also times when we're slow to get it when it comes to understanding what God wants. And so last week we began a series that we are going to be in for the month of August uh, in the book of Micah called Walk This Way. And specifically we're focusing in on a rather well-known verse in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 where Micah says these words. Here's what he writes. He has shown you, O people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, last week we began by kind of taking an overarching view of, of what's going on in the book of Micah. What's going on in the time and the world in which Micah is speaking, in which he's living, so that we can have a better idea of what he's trying to convey at his time. And, and this week I, I want to kind of follow in that path, but get a little bit more uh, focused in, in, in where we're going. And so we're going to be in specifically in Micah chapter 6. So we kind of took an overarching view of all of Micah. This week we're kind of, kind of, kind of going to center in on Micah chapter 6, particularly the first half of it, so that you, can, you and I can further appreciate Micah's words in their context, so that you and I can apply them to the context of our world today. And so Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says this, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. That's what God 
says. And I want to stop right there for just a moment and, and remind you of what's going on and some of the things that we talked about a little bit last week. If you remember from last week, we talked about how God has two basic concerns for his people, that, that the ways that they're living. Uh, the first is their idolatry, that they are, are, are worshiping these other gods. They've gone to worshiping these other gods and, 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 and engaging in these other religions. And as we talked about last week, one of the features of these other religions that they were worshiping in was the, just the extreme sexual immorality that had it, it not only been kind of celebrated, it, it wasn't even just overlooked, it was celebrated and even consecrated in a lot of ways. In fact, what I mean by that is it was part of the worship service. A lot of these other religions, this, this sexual immorality was part of the worship service, and the people of God were engaging in these things right alongside what was going on in the temple uh, around the altar of God. And while this is an extreme, certainly extreme example of idolatry, I do think it at least speaks to and tells us something of the fundamental reality about our fallen nature as human beings that there will always be a temptation to, to claim and to worship an image of God that endorses what our flesh wants. And the people of God throughout history have always been tempted to, to, to shape God into their image, into our image, rather than to allow God to shape us into his the second concern, though, that God has with his people in the book of Micah is, is not just their idolatry, uh, but also their, their uh, injustice toward each other and the way they're treating one another. And so you read in places like Micah, Micah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 3 and Micah chapter 6 and Micah chapter 7 of just incredible examples of, of injustice and, 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 and the way they're treating each other among the people of God. Things like civic leaders and judges taking bribes, uh, prophets and, and priests telling the people that what they want to hear in exchange uh, for, for financial gain. The poor and the oppressed being taken advantage of. Families being torn apart because they're treating each other in, in unfair and unjust and selfish ways. And so God comes along in Micah chapter 6 and he says, as we just read, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you that you would turn to worshiping these other gods and that you would act this way toward one another. And one of the things that jumps out to me, and maybe you don't necessarily see it right off the page, but one of the things that jumps out to me is how personally God takes what they're doing, how they're acting, and how they're treating one another. Now, it makes sense that God would take personally the worshiping of these other gods, right? God says, don't, don't put any other gods before me. That's one of the first commandments that he, that he gives the, the people of Israel. Don't, don't put any other gods before me. Don't worship any other gods. So that makes sense why he would take that personally. But why would God take personally how they're treating one another? But you remember, as you read through Scripture, God made human beings in his image. And throughout Scripture, God says that human beings are to be honored and respected for a lot of reasons, not the least of which that human beings are made in his image. They are more like him than anything else in all of creation. And to not love, to not honor, to not respect other human beings is in essence to not love, to not honor, and to not respect God. Loving people involves loving God, and loving God involves loving people. And when we love people, we are also loving 
God. Scripture over and over bears witness to this. That's why God is just as concerned with his people about how they're, uh, they're, they're acting and treating one another and the injustice that they're showing toward one another as he is with the idolatry that they're showing to him. And in both cases, he takes it very, very personally. And so he comes out and he says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you that you would choose to act in these ways? And listen to what he says next. Continuing in verse 4, he says, I brought you out, up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what he does here is he reminds them of all the ways that he's gone to bat for them. He reminds them of how much he loves them and how much he cares for them. And he reminds them of all these things as a testimony to say, listen, I, I'm not going anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere. I, I'm for you. And consequently, this is how much it hurts me when you act in these ways. He's not against them. He's not out to burden them, but he's for them and he loves them. And so he begins by reminding them of their deliverance out of the land of Egypt and their bondage and their slavery in Egypt, which is probably the most well-known story in the history of Israel. And so I'm not going to go into that. Um, probably the, the, the biggest story in their history, so it wouldn't, would make sense that he would remind them of that. But then he reminds them of, of two other stories that are also great illustrations of, of how much he's for them and how much he loves them. Uh, the first story you can read about in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and it involves two men by the name of Balak and Balaam. And so basically, uh, the Israelites are on their way to the promised land. They've just gotten out of the land of, of, of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They're still in the wilderness. And they're going through these, these neighboring you know, countries, these neighboring peoples. And Balak is the king of one of them. And he hears about the Israelites and all these Israelites coming near to where he is. And he gets a little bit afraid. He's a little bit worried about what's going to happen because... He's heard some stories about what has happened, the Red Sea parting and all these Egyptian chariots just being swallowed up. And he's heard some of the miraculous things that God is doing. And so Balak decides, okay, I'm going to get ahead of this. And he hires a prophet by the name of Balaam to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. Well, long story short, involves a donkey and some other things, but long story short, Every time Balaam goes to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel and on God's people, all he can do is bless them. He can't curse them. All he can do is bless them. And it's actually a funny story if you go back and read it, except if you're Balaam or Balak, about how God just continually is working on behalf of his people. The point being, God is so for his people that there have been times when he even overrode prophets who were hired to curse them and all they could do was blessed them. Second story God reminds them of is their journey from Shittim to Gilgal. It's a story told in Joshua chapters 3 and 4 when God miraculously enables his people to cross over the Jordan River and to go into the promised land when the, the, the Jordan River was at flood stage. And I know for some of us it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What, you know, just know normally the Jordan River was about 100, 100 feet or so wide during regular times, and we don't know exactly how wide it was during flood stage, but it got quite wide. We, we were down in Arkansas over, uh, over the, the summer a few weeks ago, and uh, the Mississippi River is, is a 
pretty good-sized river, if any of you have ever crossed over at Memphis and into Arkansas or vice versa. Uh, and, and one of the things that had happened is they had had so much rain that the floodplains around the Mississippi were now filled with water as well. And so you can imagine crossing the Mississippi, and then you have to cross it wider because it's there's water all in the floodplains as well. And so that's not a, an exact picture of what was going on. But basically what happens is that God dams up the water upstream so that the people of Israel can cross over into the promised land and they cross the Jordan River on dry ground. Bottom line is this. God is calling his people to remember all of the instances of him coming to their aid, of him being on their side, of him working on their behalf. So why are they still running after these other gods? Why are they still treating one another so unjustly? And here's the takeaway for me, at least one of the takeaways, in reminding them of these things, that tells me that they probably have forgotten some of these things. Now, how we can forget Things like what God did at the Red Sea or at the Jordan River or, or, or with Balak and Balaam. I, you know, I, I, I don't know in my mind, I read these stories, how can you forget them? And then I look at my own life and I think, yeah, I've, I've done that plenty of times too. Maybe I don't completely forget the memory of them, but I lose sight of how active and working and moving God was in the midst of my life and in the midst of those instances. And sometimes forgetting what God has done on our behalf can be the beginning of us straying from him and following other gods and other things. And even more than that, when I forget how merciful and how justly God has acted towards me, I tend to forget how justly and how mercifully I need to act toward you and toward those around me. And so that's why God is reminding them of what he's done on their behalf, which brings us then right up to verse 8 and verses 6 through 8. And specifically in verses 6 through 7, you find that the voice changes. And so Micah is no longer quoting God. Now he's speaking on behalf of the people. And he's going to articulate some of the questions that the people of God are asking on their end all along. And so starting in verse 6, Micah says on behalf of the people, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And these are the questions that the people of Micah's day are asking of God. Now, why? Well, again, remember what's going on and what we talked about last week with what's going on in the world of Micah during this time. Assyria is the most powerful nation, empire in the world at this time. They're overrunning, they're plundering all the countries in the area, they're taking land like it's nobody's business, and they've just conquered the northern kingdom of Samaria, and and all of this southern kingdom now of of Judah is worried that they're going to suffer the same fate. And they're in the the, the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of uh, of Judah, and, and they're They're confident in some ways because this is God's city, right? This is where the temple is. This is God's city. And and yet they're pretty anxious about Assyria coming and overrunning them as well. And Micah comes on the scene. He's like, it's not really outside the realm of possibility that this could happen. And this is a real possibility that that God would, would get his people's attention by allowing even this evil nation to come and overrun and overtake them so that he can get their attention and bring them back to him. Now, some people blow Micah off. Some are like, eh, it's never going to happen. 
But others are asking the questions, what do we need to do to get right with God again? What do we need to bring him? You ever ask that question? I think many of us have in different ways. Been in seasons of your life, maybe you've forgotten, maybe you've walked away. What, what do I need to do to get right with God? And then they go into this litany of suggestions that are escalating in terms of their show of devotion. They begin by asking, what shall we, shall we come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, some of these examples we're not going to process as, as, as easily because we, we don't live in, in that kind of society. Uh, but so I'll try to at least make it as relevant as I can for us. For them, this was a big deal. Okay, many of them didn't own livestock. And so to, to offer a calf, to offer livestock, would have been a lot for a family. In fact, for a lot of families, it would have been everything financially for them. So this is a big deal. This is where they start off with. But then they, they take it another level. And they say, well, should we bring thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Now we're into resources that only a king like Solomon would have access to. And then finally, it escalates to another level. Listen to this. How about our firstborn? They're basically talking about child sacrifice here. Is that what God wants? Our firstborn? And here's what's interesting about this. Now, now we, we, like we read this, and it's very easy to say, come on, never, never happened, right? How, how do they get to that point? Obviously, child sacrifice is detestable to God, but it was not uncommon in a lot of the Near Eastern religions of that day. And now God's people, they've so chased after other gods and allowed these other gods to be right alongside of pursuing God that they've kind of come together. And now they've allowed their view of what God wants to be influenced by what these other religions are saying pleases the gods. And we say, well, that can never happen. It, it, it happens in the church today. It's happening all over the world today. As Christians, we're allowing these other things to come right alongside the worship of the one and true God. But remember what Micah's name means. Literally, Micah's name means, who is like God? And the answer is, nobody. No one's like God. Nothing is like God. He is altogether different from all the others. Now, I want you to notice, what do all three of these suggestions have in common? They all have to do, all three of these suggestions have to do with worship rituals in and around the temple. What do we bring? A calf, thousands of rams, olive oil. Our firstborn, all of these things have to do with sacrifices and worship rituals in and around the temple. Or to put it in our language today, they all have to do with what we would equate to a worship service. What do I bring? All three of them have to do with what do we bring to the temple for the sake of a ritual act of worship and sacrifice to be made right with God again so that he would come to our aid and prevent the Assyrians from, from invading us and taking us over. They want to know what it's going to take to please God again. But like that guy writing in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Which brings us to what Micah says in verse 8. Of chapter 6. He has shown you, O people, 
what is good. And what, is the Lord, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah says he's shown you what's good. He, he's already told you what's good. He's already told you what pleases him. This is nothing new. You've just lost sight of it. And what is it that God wants? What is it that, that, that pleases him? He wants you to act justly. He wants you to love mercy. And he wants you to walk humbly with him. Now, interestingly enough, what do these three things have in common? I'll tell you one thing they don't have in common. They have really little to do with what happens in a worship service setting. Now, that doesn't mean that you come here and, and don't act justly and, and don't treat people mercifully and, and don't walk humbly with God when you're, when you're here or when they were there in the temple. But they really have very little to do with the worship rituals and sacrifices. But rather, acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God has everything to do with how they're living outside the temple. And this leads me to a couple of applications when it comes to our lives today and how we learn to walk this way. So let me just give you three takeaways from our lesson this morning. And the first is this. You can't buy God off with rituals in exchange for how we're treating one another in reality. God says, you can't buy me off with these worship rituals and then think that you can just treat each other however you want to in reality in your daily lives. The question God's people are asking in this section of Micah is the wrong one for several different reasons. One of which is that they're hoping that, they can, that, 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 that some ritual or worship sacrifice will get them off the hook for how they're living in reality with one another in their daily lives. What do we need to offer God? How do we need to perform at the temple? How do we need to look the part when we're, when we're before God, quote-unquote, in the temple, as if, as if they're not before God at any other point, right? Like, th this is not the only time that you're in the presence of God. I hope you know that. You walk out the doors and you are in the presence. You are always in the presence of God. And, and so they're, they're saying, well, well, but when we're, in the, when we're in the church building, when we're in the temple, what do we need to bring? What do we need to do? How do we need to perform so that so we can get God on our side and, and prevent Assyria from invading our borders? And Micah says, you, you are so far out in left field. You're, you're not even on the playing field at this point. You're not even in the stadium. That's not the question you need to be asking. The question you need to be asking is, how are we treating others outside the temple? And this theme comes up over and over again in Scripture. You see, it's possible to be religious and to be completely ungodly. It's possible to look the part and to have, have, have no relationship with God that affects your daily life. In fact, there are times when God becomes so frustrated over his people not getting this that he begins to disdain the worship rituals that they are engaging in, that they're doing when they're coming into the temple, the very rituals that he uh, or, ordained and, and commanded for them to do. Let me give you a couple of examples of this uh, in, in Scripture, such as uh, one is found in, in the book of Amos. Prophet Amos confronts God's people about their, their lack of care for the poor and the needy and their desire to, to live in luxury at all costs. Listen to what God says. He comes along and says this in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. Strong language. He says, I hate. I don't just dislike. I don't just, like, not in favor. I hate. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench 
to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. You look the part. You do the right things, right? Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And that's just not because they were bad singers, right? But, but, here's what I want. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or consider what God says through the prophet Isaiah when his people were in a national crisis, not unlike what we find in Micah. And interestingly, interestingly enough, they're, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're fasting, they're making sacrifices, they're observing the temple rituals. But listen to what God says, Mike, or Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 2. God says, this is strong, strong language. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have, you fa- why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You're doing the right things. <coughs> And yet, you're completely treating each other in a, in a very unjust and ungodly way. <coughs> uh, I missed my place for a second. You know, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Explode all your workers. You fa- your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking. You call a fast a day acceptable to the Lord? Then listen to what he says. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. And there are so many other examples throughout Scripture, but suffice it to say what you learn from Isaiah and Amos and Micah is that worship rituals aren't a substitute for how we treat those around us. We can't walk in these four walls and, 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 and offer our praise to God and think that that's a substitute for how we live the other six days a week with each other in real life. In fact, there are times when God basically says, we're not going any further within the walls of these te- this temple between you and me until you respond to me beyond these walls and how you're responding to one another and those who are around you in, in issues of, of justice and mercy in your own life and those around you. You cannot buy God off with rituals in exchange for how we're treating one another in reality. Here's a second takeaway. The term worship service, I believe, should be descriptive of our week and not just a destination on the weekend. Worship service ought to be a description of how we're living throughout the week, not just where we go or what we quote-unquote do today on the weekend. You think about that term worship Service. We often use that to describe what it is that we're doing right now. Although, truth be told, that's not really what's going on when we gather 
together. It's more of an assembly or, or a gathering, to be accurate. Well, where, yes, we, we, we encourage one another and we worship God and we praise God and we, we, we receive encouragement from each other. But worship service is more about what happens with us during the week. When you live justly and mercifully, you're worshiping him during the week. That's worship service. Let me give you a couple examples. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. See the connection? But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Or as Jesus himself put it in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me also. So you can see how personally God takes it when we don't act justly, when we don't live mercifully with those around us. Because acting justly and loving mercy is directly tied to walking humbly with our God. And by the way, this isn't to to belittle or to downplay what we're doing here and what we're doing when we gather together on Sundays or whenever it is that we gather again during the week. And it's an important, it's a necessary part of our Christian walk and our Christian life. In fact, like uh, the the boxes that our uh, children's toys sometimes come in, some assembly is required, right? Some assembly is required in our lives, but like those toys or anything that requires assembly, you don't just assemble for the sake of assembly, right? When you put something together, when you assemble something, it's meant to serve a purpose. We assemble something for a purpose that involves its use. We assemble in here for the sake of being put together and being used out there. Or sometimes we come together in here to be put back together because we've been taken apart and beaten up. But it's all for the purpose of us acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with God out there for His glory. Worship assemblies should lead to worship service. And in due time, worship service provides the testimonies for what we do when we gather in our worship assemblies. And so let me ask you the question, how's your worship out there? I'm not so concerned about how your worship is in here. How's your worship out there? Because our worship service should be descriptive of our week, not just a destination on the weekend. Lastly, here's a third takeaway for us. While our faith is personal, God never intended for it to be private. While our faith is personal, God never intended for it to be private. It's supposed to be public in living justly and acting mercifully towards others and in walking humbly with our God. And if it's not public, then maybe it's not as personal as we think. As one person put it, justice is what love looks like in public. And when you think about it, God's never been very private when it comes to his love for us, right? He used supernatural wonders and powers to get his people's attention as to the birth of his son. His son died a very public 
and humiliating death all for us. And his love for us is extremely and incredibly personal, and yet his love for us has never been private. And so it should be with ours when it comes to him. In fact, the very shape of the cross, you think about it, yeah, it describes you've got two, two uh, paths, right? Two, two um, routes. And, and certainly the, the up and down, the vertical, describes that relationship, that a relationship has been repaired between an individual and God because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it also describes horizontally that relationships between each other have the chance to be repaired to be mended, to be healed, to grow because of what Jesus has done for us. It's not just about me being restored to God. It's about me being restored to those around me where I begin to act toward you the way that God has acted towards me, justly and in mercy. And it's about time for the church to realize this fully, that it's not just about me and God, it's also about me and those around me in wake of what God has done for me on the cross. God's love for us is so personal, but it's never been private. And so it should be with ours when it comes to him. And so I think it's about time for us to go and engage in some worship service this week. Don't you think?